I've been asked uh, before I start to just make quick potential amendment to an announcement that the walk through the building will be on the 22nd, not on the 15th, but I assure you he's really good with numbers. Um, <laughs> and he gave me permission to make that affirmation. So uh, with that to the side, um, Let's pray and, and give our time to the text. Father, we uh, come before you now to open your word and hear from it. And Lord, it is our desire that our hearts would be reoriented to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And there are so many things that, um, that pull us away, pull our affections, pull our eyes, pull our heart away from Jesus as the Messiah. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning that we would clearly see and know and that you would be drawing us to you through your word and through your Holy Spirit and through the reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen. There's a, I find it kind of a weirdly fascinating part of human global history. And it's, it's commonly known as uh, the Japanese holdouts of World War II. And maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's fine, I'm going to explain it. In 1945, Emperor uh, Hirohito of Japan surrendered, and, uh, which was great news for the world, but was not announced throughout the hundreds of islands in the Pacific, many of which had Japanese soldiers who were, to the best of their knowledge, following the orders of the emperor to be an outpost soldier on that island. And what I'm going to read is from an article I found on this phenomenon. So remember, August 1945 was the surrender. In 1974, Hiro Onoda, a Japanese army intelligence officer, caused a sensation when he was persuaded to come out of hiding by a former comrade on the Philippine island of Lubang. Mr. Onoda, now 83, wept uncontrollably as he agreed to lay down his rifle, unaware that Japanese forces had surrendered 29 years earlier. He returned to Japan the same year, but unable to adapt to life in his home country he emigrated to Brazil in 1975. Two years earlier, Soichi Yokoi was found on the island of Guam and returned to Japan, where he died in 1997. Like Mr. Onoda, he had no idea the war had ended. The problem faced by Onoda and, and Soichi was well, as well as several other Japanese soldiers on the Pacific Islands, is uh, 
is they were not given proper understanding and they could not see and know what was actually happening. Imagine this. You're a Japanese soldier, completely dedicated to your country. You get no word of anything. You have no idea what's going on. In your mind, the war is still going on. Maybe Japan is doing really well. Maybe they're not. And eventually, you have to surrender and realize that you've been living in a cave for 30 years without necessity. Of all the things that are difficult for them to live with, I mean, they come from, they leave 1940s Japan, come back to 1970s Japan. A lot of innovation has happened in that time. And they're wrestling with the fact that, I mean, you imagine if you were married when the war started. You've missed out on nearly 30 years of your own marriage. The opportunity to have kids, to earn a living, the opportunity to celebrate birthdays and holidays, and you're there in this cave eating who knows what from the jungle, all the while your family's having real sushi, not high V sushi, but real sushi. And you're missing all of it. And not just the idea that they didn't see and know what was really happening, but by not seeing and knowing what was really happening for 30 years, they had just an immeasurable amount of loss and experiences and opportunities for joy and opportunities to celebrate, to have plumbing and home-cooked food. When we do not have a clear view and understanding of Jesus and God the Father and the salvation offered, when we mistake His identity, we miss reality and we rob ourselves of joy and miss out on the fullness of God and what the Lord has to offer. And with that in mind, let's read our text. If you haven't turned there already, go to Mark 8. We're going to start reading in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village and when he had spit onto his eyes, he laid his hands on him and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not enter this village. Do not enter the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
These two stories seem almost unrelated, but I assure you that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put them together for a reason. And we're going to look at that reason and see how these two passages, particularly the story of the blind man, not only fits with the confession of Christ, but fits in the larger context, going back to last week's passage that Pastor Adam uh, ministered to us through, and then moving into the next couple weeks. And while the statement seems, seems obvious, these two passages are telling us that Jesus came that we may see and know him as our loving, sovereign healer. Jesus came that we may see and know him as our loving, sovereign healer. And you, you see where we're going with this. It's this, this first part breaks into two sections, that there's an inadequate vision and a full sight. And so we're going to look at both of those. But before we get into the miracle and the uniqueness of it, there's a couple observations that are worth noting. First of all is the people. They come to Bethsaida. This is the hometown of Peter and Andrew. Uh, so they're coming back. Uh, maybe they're going to crash at Peter's mother-in-law's again. She's like, oh, great, here we go again with the crowds. Um, and so they're coming, and the crowd, these, these people, they bring the blind man to Jesus. And while this is less dramatic than the guys who cut the hole in the roof earlier in Mark and lowered their friend through it, it bears similarity, namely that these friends brought someone to Jesus who couldn't have gotten there on his own or not without great difficulty, and they bring him to Jesus. And this is, um, this is an example of intercession, that when we are praying for people, when we are lifting up someone's needs, we are, we are taking them to Jesus in a way. I had, I heard just a wonderful testimony. I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. Um, I was talking with Dan Borich a few months ago while he was in the midst of some really difficult treatments. And I, I, I reminded him that we're praying for him, that I was praying for him, that we as a church are praying for him. He said, you know, when people pray for me, God takes those prayers and he turns them into gifts and he gives them to me. And so in the midst of this treatment, in the midst of sitting in this room at Mayo, I would have moments of joy and moments of peace. And I knew that that was someone who prayed for me and God took that prayer and he gave it back to me as a gift. When we pray for people, when we intercede for others' needs, we're, we're doing similar to what these people are doing, but we're also doing something similar to a, a difference that Adam brought out last week in the text, and that is there's a big difference between Jesus' voyeurs and Jesus' followers. Let me repeat that. There's a big difference between Jesus' voyeurs or voyeurism, the I want to be a spectator of Jesus to see something kind of cool. That's what Herod was. That's kind of what the Pharisees were doing, but they were a little more malicious than that. And then I want to be a follower of Jesus, whereas I see Jesus as the ultimate. I see Jesus as the Savior and the Lord, the one who can actually do something about it. So I'm going to go to him with my problems, and I'm going to help others do the same. There's a big difference between the two. And here we see a crowd that is not a bunch of Jesus voyeurs trying to just see a miracle so they can go home and talk about it and go, oh, I was there when this happened. But we see a bunch of people who are genuinely concerned for this blind man and want to see his vision restored. 
They're going to the one who has saving power. The other thing I want to note is Jesus' personal care. Even if there was a hint of Jesus' voyeurism in these people, and I don't think there was, because they are begging Jesus to do something, he takes the man aside, this personal step. Let's go over here. I'm going to heal you, but let's go over here away from the crowd. This is a private moment. And he, and he starts dealing with the man gently and personally. Now, moving into the inadequate vision. There are some times in our life, hold on, there are many times in our lives where even though we may trust Jesus, we find ourselves at a complete loss for why he is doing what he is doing, or maybe we would word it more, we trust Jesus fully and we have no idea why we're going through what we're going through. And why does Jesus do this with this guy? Why does he take him to the side? And he spits in his eyes. And the weird thing is, that's not the most shocking part of the story. The most shocking part of the story is Jesus, after spitting on the guy's eyes, he goes, well, what do you see? It's like Jesus has no idea what's happening. The guy goes, well, I see people, but they look like trees going around. And like, why doesn't Jesus just heal him right away? Why doesn't Jesus just, because, like, is Jesus having an off day? Is there some kryptonite around? Does he have COVID? We don't know. I don't think it's any of those. I don't think Jesus was low on sleep. I don't think he was distracted. Uh, I think Jesus was completely sovereign and had a reason for this. And we're going to get more into that reason towards the end. But the Jesus was completely sovereign. And, and here's where Jesus not healing this guy completely gives me hope. Jesus had a reason to not heal this guy completely immediately. He had done that so many other times. I mean, he's, he's raised people back to life. This, this vision just seems like an easy piece of cake for Jesus on the spectrum of healing. Certainly it's less complicated than leprosy or something. If Jesus could have completely healed him in the first time and didn't, then he must have had a reason. And if I am going through a trial that I want no part of, and it's not getting resolved on my timeline, which I think we can all agree is a pretty great timeline, then maybe, just maybe, the Lord has a reason for that too. And if God, this is, this is where Tim Keller has helped me in my thinking with this, if God is sovereign enough to change it in an instant, and he doesn't, then he must have a reason for not doing it that I, at least in this moment, can't understand. But I know that God is good. So I'm going to trust him in that. Jesus cares and he's doing something here. So we go from the inadequate vision to the full sight. Jesus does give him full sight. He touches the man's eyes 
And then the man sang, I can, I can see clearly now the trees are gone. There were steel drums in the back and everything. You don't see that in the text, but I think archaeologists have pretty much proved it. He doesn't send him back to where he came from. He sends him home. Go to the village. This miracle, you know, sometimes Jesus did miracles for the masses. Like, you know, a couple weeks ago, the feeding of the 4,000. Sometimes he did it to just deliver someone, and sometimes he did it to, to bring about a point, and that's where this is, and, and that's the reason for the discreetness. Jesus heals the man, but the point of this healing isn't for the fame of the name of Christ. It's for something else. And it feels, it can feel, when we read this passage, as though Mark just threw in a one-off interesting story about Jesus. But let's keep reading, because they go along to the village's accessory of Philippi, and they have a pretty important conversation on the way. And that conversation points that Jesus came that we may see and know him, not just as a loving, sovereign healer, but as the true Messiah that we would see him as a true Messiah. And here we have again an inadequate and a full. And so here's the inadequate understanding. So they're, they're going around and Jesus goes, well, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, uh, John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. If you remember from last fall when we were back in uh, Mark 6, King Herod had all these same theories about Jesus after having killed John the Baptist himself. See, the first century rumor mill did not have a lot of turnover. Uh, it just, they just kind of kept the same story going. These, these are all the same theories as Herod. And it, and it could be that the people of that day and age were not very creative. I mean, they did not even have the genre of science fiction yet. Uh, but... It also points to, to two, uh, two realities, I think, of the masses. One, they were amazed by Jesus, and the second is they were limited in their understanding. These explanations of Jesus, I mean, imagine this. Imagine if John the Baptist had raised from the dead after being beheaded. Amazing! That'd be astoundingly powerful. Imagine. Elijah comes back down from heaven on the chariot of fire. Blow us away. Imagine if one of the other prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, just pick one. Imagine one of the prophets is back and prophesying. Wow! That'd be incredible. All of these things would be amazing. All of these things would be clearly from God, and those are the things they're seeing in Jesus. This is an amazing work. It's clearly from God. But even in the amazement, it demonstrates an incomplete knowledge of Christ. And not just an incomplete knowledge of Christ, but a tragically incomplete knowledge of Christ. People miss Jesus all the time. Sometimes people miss Jesus because they've never heard the name of Jesus. I remember being a kid, uh, and by kid I mean junior high-ish, and uh, 
this gal named Ingrid who had grown up as part of our church and gone to serve in Mongolia came back and she was given a report at our church and they were showing a video where someone from their team was talking to a man in a, in a nomadic village in Mongolia and, and said, hey, do you know who Jesus is? He goes, I've never heard that name before. Who is he? Does he live in the city? And it just blew me away as like a 13, 14-year-old that there's people in the world that think that, are, that just have no idea who Jesus is. Oh, he just must be a guy living in the next village or in another city. So there's sometimes people miss him because they've never heard his name. But other cases are just mistaken identity. As amazing as all of these theories could have been if they were true, we also need to realize they all would have fallen dramatically short of the Son of God taking on humanity, being born as a baby, living a sinless life, and dying on the cross for our sin. What the people thought they had was some sort of prophet 2.0. That was their best, that was their best thought. It's also important to note that there's a lot of religions that think Jesus was a really great guy. Some even say he was clearly a prophet from God. But they all fall short. And so Jesus then turns to the disciples. That's who the people say I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. This is the saving knowledge. Not the inadequate knowledge, but the saving knowledge. And here's, here's the great news. Jesus is not a repeat. He's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist raised up, as, as spectacular as that would have been. He's not Isaiah 2.0. He is the Christ. He is truly unique. He's not one of many. He's not one of a few. He is the one. And this, we read you, he, that you are the Christ. This is the, the Greek word. The Hebrew word there would be Messiah, as we translate it. That you are the Messiah. You are the God-anointed, victorious king that comes to bring God's kingdom and God's will. The last time we had a messianic king, his name was David. And so there's, they're realizing this is a new thing. This is, this is a, a, a really big deal that the Christ has come to bring victory for God's people, to bring deliverance for God's people. In other gospel accounts, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus tells him, the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you, Peter. Jesus is not a better human. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And our saving knowledge of Christ is there's a lot of people that know who Jesus was. But there's not as many people that know who Jesus is. And there's a big difference between knowing there was a person on the earth named Jesus of Nazareth and knowing that there is a king in heaven named Jesus Christ. Sometimes we categorize this inadequate understanding of God as bad doctrine. 
And bad doctrine is not just dangerous because you'll look like a fool at your theology dinner parties that you all are so famous for. Doing Nicene Creed trivia. Wouldn't that just be the dorkiest thing? I'm glad you guys don't do that. I don't know I could be your pastor if you did. Bad doctrine is more precisely a false view of the triune God. And it causes us, or can cause us, to woefully miss the mark and rob us of the fullness of God. Like I said, prophet 2.0 would be amazing, but it would never come close to delivering us from sin. And there are some people with false doctrines that they think, well, this is a greater understanding of the Lord. And really, it's a significantly lesser understanding. And when we look at the full scope of the truth of who God is, it creates a much bigger picture than any false doctrine ever could. It creates a smaller God of a lesser glory. Truly, the Son of God coming, taking on flesh, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying for our sins, and rising back from the dead, currently reigning on the throne in heaven, not only providing forgiveness for our sins, but praying to us, praying for us to the Father. Whoa, that was almost really bad doctrine. <laughs> praying for us, being our mediator, is a supremely higher view than Elijah came back. This is where the blind man comes back into focus for us. As we zoom out and look at the context, and instead of saying, what on earth is Jesus doing here? We need to say, what do I need to learn from this? And the answer is that Jesus is being super deliberate in healing the guy twice and having to heal him twice. And he uses this man's progressive healing to show the disciples a picture of themselves and really to show us a picture of ourselves. The disciples just before this had completely missed the lesson of the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, of how Jesus cares for and provides. And, and, is always, and they just got so distracted by the other stuff. And it was like seeing Jesus, but only seeing a tree walking around. And other people are saying, oh man, that's got to be Elijah, that's got to be Moses. They're not seeing clearly that the Son of God has come. And how many times do we start to understand Jesus? And maybe we get a pretty good handle on who Jesus is. Maybe Maybe, and I, and I believe this happens to us all the time, we come to that saving knowledge of Christ. So we're seeing pretty clearly. But we still, even with the Lord as our shepherd, walk in want of what the world has. We still, even knowing that Jesus has died and paid the penalty for our sin, we still try to work it off on our own. not realizing that the full price has been paid and the one who paid it loves you so much he's praying for you to the Father. There are a lot of you, and I can just tell by looking, and this isn't judgy, 
but you're wearing performance-enhancing eyewear. Because when you take off your glasses, or those of you who are really sneaky take out your contacts, because you're trying to be like people like me, not to brag, <laughs> very grateful for my 2020 vision at the age of 41, and I know it could leave me tomorrow. But if you took off your performance-enhancing eyewear, you'd really relate to this guy who sees the trees walking around. Because you can't drive without your performance-enhancing eyewear because you'd kill everyone. <laughs> and so there came a point in your life where you were like, maybe you were sitting in school and you're like, I can't read the chalkboard. Everyone's face is pretty fuzzy. And I need to be able to see clearly. So you took drastic measures and you went to someone who put this giant thing in front of your face that makes it look like you're one of the monsters in the Terminator movies and they just keep clicking things until it's clear. And you're like, that's it. And then they write you a prescription. Someone with great skill, carve some glass, you put it in front of your face, you go, I can see again. And you are unwilling to tolerate bad vision. You are unwilling to tolerate an unclear view of the world. But how many times are we willing to tolerate an unclear view, an incorrect and inadequate view of Christ and his kingdom because we hear something from the world that feels like it suits us? And you would never, while driving down the interstate, be like, you know, I think I got this. And you'd take off your glasses but you will constantly hear an idea and you think that sounds good and they'll, they'll, in an inadequate understanding of Christ, link it to the gospel and you'll say, you know what, I don't need these glasses, I'll go with that. Or we say, I trust my own guilt, I trust my own shame more than I trust the shed blood of Jesus and the empty tomb and we willingly take off our glasses and live as half blind. And we rob ourselves of the full joy. Imagine one of those Japanese soldiers. They hear, in 1945, the war is over. You can go home and be with your wife and live in your home and eat good food and have plumbing. And they think, you know what? I'm going to keep my rifle and stay in this cave and eat bugs. Because it's better. You'd say, that guy's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and he doesn't have a proper understanding of reality. And so many times, we create our own human assumptions about Jesus and his power, his ability to forgive, his ability to change us. And we insist on walking in our own guilt. We insist on trying to build up our own sense of what a good kingdom would be instead of what God says the kingdom is, a place where the last are first and the first are last. We refuse to follow a style of leadership 
that says, oh man, you got to follow me. You got you to assume the lowest position in the room and serve the people around you. Refuse to take up our cross because we have an inadequate understanding of Jesus as the Son of God who came to save us. Not just for our life in this world, but for an eternal kingdom. And what we need to do, the best way to unclog all those things that make our view cloudy is to put on the glasses of Scripture. Or as Moses said about the law, let it be as frontlets for your eyes. That we would view the world through Scripture. Through the, the lens that tells us a, a God in heaven created, humanity rebelled and has fallen away, and even though we still carry the image of God in us, it is deeply marred by sin. And it needs to be redeemed by Christ. And only through Christ can we live that life. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You have loved us. You have forgiven us. You have bore with our sins for so long. And, and Christ, you have paid the penalty. Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us see more clearly, trust more fully, and live more joyfully because of who Christ is. We praise you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.